morning. We're going to be in John chapter 11 today in the Gospel of John. If you want to go ahead and uh, get over there, we'll be there in just a moment. Certain smells stick with us. Maybe it's the perfume that your love wears. Maybe it's that soup simmering on the stove. Maybe it's trying to find out just where in the house that your dog went. <laughs> Some smells permeate everything. I, uh, I'm getting over a sinus infection this, uh, this week, and so I had a humidifier right next to my bed, and uh, it was being moved, and it splashed everywhere all over the rug. It doesn't really matter who was moving it. It just happened. And it got all over the rug and soaked everything. And a, a couple days later, we noticed this really kind of sour, moldy smell and realized that the, the rug had never fully dried. And it's just been, Jessica had been looking for days. Where's that smell coming from? And it was coming from the rug. And so she bought this uh, orange spray and sprayed it all over the house. And now our house smells like moldy oranges everywhere. <laughs> smells permeate things. They lure us into restaurants. We uh, haven't noticed before, certain, uh, your curtains, your clothes, your car interiors, preserved stories of recent meals or long hours spent in a coffee shop. Do we have any people that work with middle school students in here? My point is made. I don't know if you know this, but our brains process smells in close proximity to our emotion and memory centers. This means that smells participate in how we catalog our experiences. They, that's why they have such evocative power. Did you know that God has a sense of smell? After the flood, when Noah is, is getting off the ark, he wants to honor God, and he does this burnt sacrifice of an animal. And Genesis tells us that the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. The Lord is moved to mercy by the smell of cooked meat. One author writes this, he says, I've always thought the sense of smell as more an, an intimate sense than other senses, because in smelling, the thing that we smell becomes a part of us. In detecting a smell, we absorb the essence of the thing emanating it. It's just important to remember when we remember that Jesus Christ actually physically came in the flesh. John reminds us, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. And he could have just said, who we have heard. Who we have seen with our eyes, who we have gazed at, who our eyes, hands have handled concerning the word of life. The word of life is Jesus Christ, the word alive. People heard him, they saw him, they touched him, they smelled him. These are real people like you and me in contact with a real man from Galilee. And as we've been moving towards Easter this Lent season, we've taken time to really just sense Jesus in the Gospels. We've, we've looked at the touch of Jesus that provides life, the seeing of Jesus through the eyes of faith, the taste of the wine that he created, the hearing of his voice. And today, we wrap this up with the aroma of his life, or his death and his life again. And so turn with me to John chapter 11, and, and let's explore this sense of Jesus together. In John 11, we actually find Jesus doing something interesting. He's arriving late to a funeral, four days late. It's a funeral for one of his closest friends, Lazarus, the brother of Martha and Mary. Now, Lazarus had been on his deathbed. He's dying. His sisters, Martha and Mary, sent word, go find Jesus. We know Jesus can heal him. We've seen him heal, uh, cure the blind and heal the sick. And uh, we know he has the power. And, of course, he's going to come and save our brother. 
So they send this message out. John tells us that when Jesus got the message, verse 4, he said, this illness won't lead to death. It's about the glory of God. The Son of God's going to be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Whew, good news. Lazarus is not going to die. Why is he not going to die? Well, something about God's glory, but, but also because Jesus loves you. And when Jesus loves you, you don't get sick and you don't die, right? What a great message. So when Jesus heard that he was ill, he stayed where he was to begin with for two days. Now, we don't get the sense that he was busy. He wasn't detained. He wasn't stuck. He determined to delay. And during the delay, Lazarus dies. Jesus said he wouldn't die, but then he did die, so maybe I guess Jesus was wrong. Why didn't Jesus save his friend? And then when Jesus is explaining and breaking the news to the disciples about the loss of their friend too, he says something very enigmatic. He says, Lazarus is dead. Actually, I'm glad I wasn't there. For your sakes, it will help your faith, but let's go to him. Is this the Jesus that you know? A Jesus who was glad he wasn't there to help? A Jesus who was glad he wasn't there to heal? A Jesus who was glad he wasn't there to prevent suffering and pain? Mary and Martha had held the hands of their brother as he passed away, and Jesus, their friend, their loved one, was nowhere to be found. And when Jesus finally shows up, the tomb is closed, the stone is in place, the flowers have begun to wilt. Patty, one of our pulpit rockers, just recently returned from a trip to the Holy Land, and she sent me this picture. She said, hey, this is Lazarus's tomb. We're actually, uh, from the point of view, uh, they're standing inside this tomb that they believe was Lazarus's tomb, or it's at least one like it. And so you would kind of have this stone across that uh, covering that would have closed it, and you would have walked out those steps. When Jesus arrives, he says in verse 39, take away the stone. But master, said Martha, the dead man's sister, there will be a smell. It's the fourth day already. It's the fourth day he's been dead. There will be a smell. When someone dies, the body immediately begins the decomposition process. Uh, uh, these various gases created by these microorganisms. In fact, a dead body will release the 30 different chemical compounds producing smells like feces and mothballs and Rotten eggs, it's not pleasant. Now, something that's fundamental to grasp, anytime you read the New Testament, if you will read this, if you will keep this worldview in mind, it makes sense. The fundamental thing that was driving the people of God during the New Testament, during the gospel times, was this thought, we want to make God happy, and the way you make God happy is to be pure. And you are pure based on your heritage, if you can trace your lineage all the way back to Abraham. And you are pure by the way that you act and behave and believe. And so they're always asking the question, am I in the right family? Am I believing and acting in the right ways? I want to be pure before God. That will make him happy. And so what Martha is saying here in one sense is, Jesus, you're taking a huge risk. If you open that stone, you're going to uncover this decaying corpse. And every one of us standing around can become impure spiritually from the release of the odor. I personally think something else might be happening here for Martha. Lazarus is more than a body. He's her brother. Lazarus had a smell. Maybe it was the earthy smell of a farmer. 
Maybe it was the, the, the smell of wood that he worked with. Maybe it was leather, le- the smell of leather that he cured. I don't know, but he had a smell. And I think there's part of her saying, I, I, I don't, I don't want to remember him a different way. Verse 38. Didn't I tell you, said Jesus, if you believed, you would see God's glory. They took the stone away. And then this is really interesting. We, we see Jesus praying. This is such a, Jesus lifted up his eyes. Thank you, Father, for hearing me. I know that you always hear me. But I've said this because of the crowd standing around, so they may believe that you sent me. With these words, he gave a loud shout. Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. He was tied up hand and foot with strips of linen, and his face was wrapped in a cloth. Untie him and let him go. Out from the tomb shuffles this man, mummy-wrapped in this perfumed linens. You know, they would, uh, they would anoint these bodies with perfume uh, when they first died because they didn't have great preservation techniques, and there would often be time before they would bury them. So to kind of st- stave off the, uh, the smells that we've been talking about, they would anoint them with some kind of oil or perfume. He had to be unwrapped to walk. And now we begin to understand Jesus wasn't glad to see his friends suffer. But he was glad to show him a sign, proof that he was master over death. Now, it would be interesting if this story of smell kind of ended here, but it didn't. Because a few days later, and a few verses later, in John chapter 12, we find this happening. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. Lazarus was there, the man he had raised from the dead just a few days ago. So they made dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was among the company at the table with him. It's not every day that you dine with a dead man. And John makes a point of mentioning Lazarus twice. Perhaps Lazarus had been quite the local celebrity of late, right? Hey, Lazarus, what was it like being dead? Hey, dead guy. I don't know. He's, He's walking around. Twice he's mentioned. Lazarus, the man raised from the dead. I have a feeling that was going to be his name the rest of his life, you know? Hey, Lazarus, you know, the guy raised from the dead. So they're tabling together. They're eating When Lazarus' sister gets up, and then this happens, then Mary took a pound of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the smell of perfume. A pound of perfume. When I was a kid, uh, my elementary school would have this uh, kind of craft fair, this gift fair before Mother's Day. They didn't have anything like that for Father's Day, but... For Mother's Day, you could go and you could buy really nice stuff for your mom. You could buy, like, a bracelet for a dollar. You could buy an expensive ring for $2. But I loved my mom, and I had my, height, my sights set much higher. So I bought her, for $2.50, a giant tub of perfume. And it, wasn't, it was not cheap perfume. It had French words on it and everything. I was so proud to buy it, haul it home in my backpack, and I, I wrapped it up. I couldn't wait to see my mom's face when she opened it. My brother had just scribbled something on a piece of colored paper like a peasant or something. But I loved my mom, and I gave her this thing, and I wish you could have seen her face when she opened it. And when she smelled it, oh, I just knew she was going to have decades of enjoyment <laughs> from this luxurious ointment. Mary brings in a 
jug of perfume equal to a year's salary. Now, I don't know where this came from. I don't know if this was a, an, an heirloom or, or something. Or I don't know if she just was realizing something was about to happen and said, you know, I have my, a year's worth of savings, I've, my life savings. I, I'm going to go buy I'm, I'm going to do something. And she takes this perfume, and it's made of nard. Now, nard is this kind of uh, 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 plant, and uh, from the roots of it, or the spikes of it, they would uh, kind of crush it and make this oil, and they would use it for things. And so it's called spike nard, maybe in your Bible. And she anointed Jesus with this perfume, so much that the house was filled with the aroma. And John tells us a really interesting detail. He says that she wiped his feet with her hair. Back in the culture of this day, as we know, often when we look to things in the Middle East, you'll see women that will have their head covered or they'll be wearing some kind of uh, uh, covering there. Well, one of the things they would do is they would have their hair bound up, and they would never unbound their hair in public because it was kind of a, a sign of honoring God. And they had this belief that loose hair kind of meant loose morals. And so if you were, had your hair down in public, they would go, whoa, what's going on there? It's kind of a shameful thing. Mary doesn't seem to care too much about being shamed. Why is she doing this? This is an interesting act. You know, on the one hand, I, th I think she's grateful. Her brother's alive. Her brother, who was lying in a tomb, is now lying at the table, reclining there. The, 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 the final words that he croaked out to her have been replaced with the sound of his laughter in the home again. She's grateful. But second of all, we've read ahead, and so we know something that they haven't fully grasped yet around that table, that Mary is pre-anointing a corpse. The man at the table who just proved a few days ago that he has the power over death is preparing for his own. And soon his body will be laid to rest, smelling of blood and stool and perfume and embalming spices. And this beautiful stench is going to fill the tomb, telling a story of reckless love for Mary and for the rest of the world. And I really don't know how much Mary understood what was happening here, but her lavish love for this man unleashes a fragrance that's going to change the world. It's not lost on me that both Lazarus and Jesus were laid in a tomb by someone else, but they would walk out under their own power, the power of resurrection. So where do we see this beautiful stench today? Two decades after this dinner party, a man named Paul was writing about smell. And in a letter to the church in Corinth, he said this, But thanks be to God. The God who always leads us in his triumphal procession in the Messiah and through us reveals everywhere the sweet smell of knowing him. We are the Messiah's fragrance before God, you see. To those who are being saved and to those who are being lost, to the latter, it's a smell that comes from death and leads to death, but to the former, it's the smell of life which leads to life. We're that aroma, that curious mixture of death and life. He mentions the triumphal procession. Uh, if you remember a, a few moments ago, Susie spoke about today is Palm Sunday. It's the triumphal procession of Christ. In Roman culture, the triumphal procession was a parade they would held after a military victory. Just imagine this, the scene is the general is kind of on this chariot. And he's going through and the crowds are cheering and throwing flowers or whatever. The ticker tape parade kind of idea. And, and the soldiers are all polished shields and weapons and, and cheering. It's a victory parade. And then behind them, they would drag these people in chains, the captured enemy. These captures, 
the captives were, were bloody, they were muddy, they smelled like stu- suffering, and they were headed to their own execution, the price of losing. And Paul is describing this scene, this triumphal procession, but in this twist, Paul says, guess what, I'm the one in chains. Who's leading me through public? Jesus Christ is my conqueror. And as Paul parades through the procession of his life, the smell of captivity to Christ is upon him. To those being saved, it's the fragrance of freedom. To those perishing, it's the scent of death. The gospel stinks, he says. It smells like us. It's the smell of forgiveness and new life. And this is why Paul can say things like, but thanks be to God, even though he's shackled, even though he is suffering for the gospel, he knew that his life was being used to spread the fragrance of the gospel. And the more that he suffered, the more that he smelled, and the more that he smelled, the power, more powerful was the message. Paul, why would you do this? Why are you doing this stuff? What is so important that you'd be willing to risk your life for it? Smell. In fact, in his own words in this same letter, he describes what his life has been like. This is the smell of his life. Paul says in chapter 11, I've been in prison. I've been beaten more times than I can count. I've often been close to death. Five times I've had what they call the Jewish beating. And this is where they will lash you, not 40 times, because that would be painful. They lash you 40 minus 1, 39 times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I was adrift in the sea for a night and a day. I've been constantly traveling. I've been facing dangers from rivers, from brigands, from my own people, from foreigners. I face dangers in towns, and I face dangers in the countryside. I face dangers at sea, dangers from false believers. I've toiled, I've labored, I've burnt the candle at both ends. I've been hungry, I've been thirsty. Sometimes I've gone without food at all. I've been cold, I've been naked. These are not the smells that earn parades. The smell of blood from a beating, the smell of salt from a shipwreck, the aroma of adrenaline from facing dangers. But what he's saying here is God has inverted the categories and a cross known for the stench of decay and defeat actually becomes the means through which Christ produces the fragrance of new life. So on Palm Sunday, we think about this triumphal procession of Jesus, the conquering hero, coming into the city, the flowers being thrown, the palm fronds being waved, the city cheering his name. The victory procession of Jesus was really a death march towards an unexpected twist of grace. God's grace may be operating in similar ways in our lives today. It may come to us in unexpected ways in places. God's grace may be even coming to us in ways we don't want or like. Sometimes what smells like death is actually bringing new life. Let me give you an example of this. Roland Smith, you know Roland, uh, one of our pastors here, has just written a book called Life Out Loud. And he wrote it about finding Jesus and how Jesus is at work in the world and how you join him. And, and he tells a story in here about uh, one of our mutual friends, Eric Sandris. Eric is pastor over at the Sanctuary Church. Sanctuary Church is over on the west side of town, and it's a really kind of interesting intersection 
of neighborhood. Uh, it, it's got neighborhoods on one side of it, and it's kind of got a, a, a lot of a homeless community on the other side. So it's kind of a, an interesting intersection, and, and that brings for some interesting issues for them to kind of wrestle with and think through. For example, one of the things they have to deal with a lot is when homeless people show up to church and they bring their pet with them, wh- what do we do with all these homeless pets? Like, how do we, how, how do we manage that? Or they have other things, like they have this, uh, this uh, hallway during the week that at one end is this Christian counseling center, and on the other end is this non-faith-based addiction recovery deal. And I just think it's interesting and fascinating to think that, that you have some people that believe in God and some people that maybe don't believe in, in God that are working together in a church. That's kind of crazy. This is what the story that Roland tells, though. He says, Eric told me a story about a woman who came to Christ one morning in the, their worship gathering. Eric approached her one day asking her, what brought you to the decision to follow Jesus? She talked about the first time she visited on a Sunday morning. She smelled bacon and body odor mixed together near the room where the homeless were having breakfast. She went on to describe going into the bathroom and smelling vomit, where somebody had obviously gotten, just gotten sick as a result of their binge the night before. Then when she was in the worship gathering, the music started, and she could tell that someone around her was carrying the smell of booze from drinking all night. Then it hit me, she told Eric, this place smells like my life, and I knew I would be safe. This is Roland's point. If we're honest, all of us carry a little bit of smell in our life. It's not a smell we like. It's the smell of reality and of living, and it's the smell that Jesus often chose to hang out with. And if we're completely honest... We may be spit-shined on the outside. Our lawn may be manicured. We may have the nicest car and clothes. But if people get close enough to us, there will always be that smell of life on our breath. This is what the woman in Eric's church smelled that day. It wasn't hidden in the beauty of suburbia and the I'm fine of many church foyer responses. It was reality on the outside that reminded her of a need for the gospel on the inside. It was as if God was saying, don't say I'm fine. When asked how you are, tell the truth and come to me. This is the raw and unfiltered beauty of the church community. It ushers brokenness to the surface to meet face to face with a redeeming God. What does the gospel smell like to you? Maybe like Martha, we're a little afraid of the suffering and the smell of suffering. But maybe like Mary, we can have the heart that looks beyond that suffering to the good and the glory that God is working on. I want to give you a question to prepare us to come towards the table today. Here's the question. Could it be that somewhere in your life today, Jesus is using what smells like death to bring new life? There's something that you're facing or seeing, and it just it smells like death. It smells like scary. It smells like suffering. And could it be that Jesus is working in that in a surprising way? Let's ask that question of him in prayer for a moment. Will you pray with me? So, Jesus, we're, we're thinking of something that's scary to us right now. We're thinking of something that doesn't smell good to us right now. Could it be that you are working something good, something good for us, something that would release the fragrance to other people about you? Could you begin to speak truth to us about that as we come to your table?
Christ's name, amen. We're going to bring this question to the table today to meet face-to-face with our redeeming God. There are, there are six tables around this room. There's a table up there, and there's going to, a table in that glass room up there. As you come to the tables, you're going to notice something. Something new is sitting at the table today. There is a vial there with sticks coming out of it. We've coated these sticks with spikenard, the same oil that Mary anointed Jesus with. When you come to the table, I'm going to ask you to lean in and breathe deeply the aroma of life. Now, I'm going to warn you about something. When we ordered spikenard, I thought, looking in the Bible, it says a beautiful, expensive perfume. It's got to smell great. It has a very pungent and odd smell. I I can't imagine it being used for perfume. (laughs) Unless people were just so smelly back then that this was a good alternative. But it's had an unintended side effect that when I came to the table, I was like, this is not pleasant. And the table's supposed to be pleasant. And now there's this, the beauty of new life and the smell of, of suffering. As you come to the tables today, smell the aroma that was broken over Jesus before he was broken over us. The tables are open.